The interesting thing about these non-religious or post-religious reappropriations of the Islamic idea is that they all take quite different ways to express themselves and yet have certain commonalities. Hey, welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, and he's Troy Polidori. And if you're familiar with the podcast, you realize that's not usually how we do the intro, but that's because this week we're doing a little bit of a special episode. We're releasing what was a bonus episode from a few months back with a buddy of mine named Tim Levins. He's a philosopher and poet. We talk about messianism. We talk about Jacques Derrida. We talk about uh, Walter Benjamin and a few other key historical figures in the 20th century philosophical landscape. I think we might even talk about Heidegger a little bit at times, but really exploring the idea of this concept of messianism, not within a theological landscape, although it really blurs the lines between philosophy and theology, um, as we are wont to do on this podcast quite often, but he explores how various other 20th century philosophical figures really used the concept of messiah, messianism, uh, messianicity, to buttress their philosophical explorations. So that's what we're going to talk about here. But of course, first, uh, we do want to give a shout out to our sponsor over at Mubi. Mubi is an online streaming service that uh, at any given time has a rotation of 30 films, 30 curated films from independent darlings to festival winners to regional foreign films, masterpieces, classics of cinema, and the way they do things is sometimes they'll do retrospectives on on directors, so they're doing a retrospective right now, at least in my library. There are regional variances depending on where you are around the world, but on uh, the wonderful French filmmaker Agnes Varda. Um, sorry, I was going to try to do a French accent there, and it's, but uh, Agnes Varda, um, and so they're going through her filmography, which is absolutely fantastic. I would recommend that if you are in Australia, maybe the UK, check your library to see if you're if you have that in there, uh, and if you do, go straight to those films. But anyway, there this with the sponsorship, you get a thirty day free extended trial if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn. That's movie. M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn. You'll get a 30-day extended trial for free. But Troy is actually going to tell you real quick about uh, a film that is in his library that is fantastic, if albeit a bit frightening and terrifying and impressionable film that is in his library. So he's going to talk to you about that. Yeah, so the film on my um, movie list right now that I want to recommend is one that you're very familiar with, Austin, Laws Vontier's Antichrist. Um, this movie is, uh, for anyone who's aware of it or has seen it, is not for the faint of heart. Um, it's a movie that I almost regret having watched, although um, not in the sense that I disliked it or hated it, but in the sense that it's left me with indelible images which will never leave my mind. Um the, the basic setup is uh, a husband and a wife um, have lost a child and they decide to help to heal the relationship uh, to go to a um, cabin in the woods that they have and 
try and rekindle things and grieve and um, get through that whole process. And then uh, safe to say shit goes down, right? Uh, I don't want to talk exactly about what happens, but um, if you feel like uh, you are not fate of heart and you can stomach um, really extreme images and scenes uh, disturbing a level that I don't think any other film uh, quite matches, then it's a one-of-a-kind type experience. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily an enjoyable movie, but it's probably one that's worth watching if you're a cinephile of any sort or if you want something new and interesting and unique. It's certainly one I think um, you would at least not enjoy necessarily watching, um, but it will be a new experience. Um, what were your, What are your thoughts on that, Austin? When I saw Antichrist for the first time, it was while I was doing my master's degree in theology during that time period when I was really questioning the orthodox foundations that had that had really defined my my life for the past few years in particular while I was studying to be a pastor slash theologian. And I, I, it was almost like I forced myself to watch it because I knew that it was important. And it was also something that in the blogosphere a bunch of people were talking about, and so I felt like I had to watch it, but I didn't quite get it. And then on repeated viewings, it's become one of my, I mean, it's hard to say one of my favorite films, but it's become one of the, one of the films that's been really important to me. And I actually just had an amazing conversation here with a woman who's a visiting scholar here in Sydney from Denmark, and we were talking about uh, Von Trier's films and talked about Antichrist and and the the way I was able to just recall elements and themes and concepts and talk about it in depth, and I haven't seen the film in a few years now, um, just shows how much of a mark the film has left on me. So I, I agree with Troy. I would recommend, if you're not interested in that type of brutal, borderline gratuitous type of imagery and themes, don't watch it. But if you um, are very interested in exploring the grotesque, the violent, the disturbed, things like that, then I would, I, I agree with Troy very much. So in order to get access to that, go to movie.com slash owls at dawn. Again, that's movie, M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn, and you will get a free 30-day extended trial. But now what we're going to do is I'm going to launch things over to what was our bonus episode uh, that is my discussion with Tim on messianism, messianicity, and things pertaining to that. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much. Peace. Yo, what's up? Welcome to another bonus episode, Owls After Dark. Thank you so much for being a patron and subscribing. And uh, I'm really excited this week to have on a buddy of mine, Tim Levens, or as his friends call him, Lovins. But uh, um, <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> so uh, Tim and I met at, uh, I guess it's a workshop. It was kind of like a summer school slash workshop on yeah. philosophy in Italy. Not this past year, but the summer before. And um, he, he's just such a great dude. He's got a very curious mind. And one of the things that he has specialized in is on the topic of messianism. And because in, obviously, yes. in the main podcast, we talk a lot about our experience with Christianity and our sort of moving out of confessional orthodox interpretations of Christianity, I thought it would be really awesome to have Tim on to talk about what could messianism mean, but it's like a non-messianic messianism, I guess, as uh, as sometimes it's described in certain frames. There's a there's a wide variety of uh, 
variations on the theme. Yeah, and what was it? You did you did your master's dissertation precisely on Messianism and like Benjamin and Derrida, right? I, I yeah, I spent uh, about three years or so studying um, all of these. I would call them non-religious reappropriations of the concept of the Messiah, of the messianic idea. And so this took me, yes, through through Derrida, through Giorgio Agamben, Walter Benjamin, um, Gershom Sholem, uh, the famous uh, Kabbalah and Judaism studies scholar, um, and then Francois Laurel, who I came to rather late. Yeah. Laurel is the pi- the pioneer of what's called non <clears throat> non philosophy, and so he has a, a large book called Christo Fiction, Christo Fiction, <laughs> which I I, rec- I recommend for your audience. It's a strange mixture of theology and quantum physics, and it's a total romp <laughs> through uh, uh, resurrection and uh, all of these things and wave particle <laughs> duality and <laughs> it's, it's a total it's a total <laughs> mindfuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 and then he also has a book called Future Christ that uh, you know a friend of the show yes. translated, Anthony Paul Smith. So, um, oh, right, yeah, right, th- that's right. one that um, I would be curious <laughs> to read myself because I have not read Laurel. And as I was reading today, I was reading some stuff on Derrida and Benjamin in relation to the Kafka parable. What is it? Before the law? Before the law, right. And I, as I was reading, I, I couldn't help but think about Laurel. And because I was kind of preparing for my chat with you, I remember that we actually had a couple of conversations over ice cream and coffee about Laurel. Uh-huh. And because he was there the previous year at the same summer school right, in, right. in Italy. So exactly. we don't need to get into it too much now, but I, I, I was hoping at some point, maybe towards the end, that we could kind of squeeze him in after we talk a little bit more maybe about Derrida and... Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Uh, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about these uh, non-religious or post-religious uh, reappropriations of the messianic idea is that they all take quite different, quite different uh, ways to express themselves and yet have certain commonalities that are impossible to overlook. So this was the, this was the cool. research. Okay, so let's start with a very simple, and maybe this is the inappropriate question, but it will hopefully open us up to uh, kind of broader questions. What is messianism? Yes. What is messianism? Very broad, very broad and difficult <laughs> question. And there's the <laughs> there's the uh, well, traditionally, uh, what does it mean? It means it's it's a sort of expectation that someone will come and and redeem the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, repair repair the world repair the world what that what that means or what that looks like is always a, a bit vague mm. right and 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 then this becomes the problem one of the main things that i that i worked on and tried to critique was in fact this notion that there would be i call it the one man hypothesis which is the idea that there would be one man one human being who would come as the sort of envoy of god mm. Who would then, you know, mend the, mend all of the contradictions in in our reality, or or lead us to a lead us to a place of, of salvation and renewal? And I think that I came to the conclusion that this uh, expectation that it would be one person it's, was quite misguided. Um, there's an interesting thing. Maybe this can also help us start off. 
Franz Rosenzweig, author of uh, Star of Redemption, mm -hmm. a great Jewish thinker of the, the last century. He made the comment, um, the difference between Jews and Christians on the question of the Messiah is that the Christians, of course, think that the Messiah has already come. Mm. And so they know they know who who they believe in, of course. Um, whereas the Jew is always asking him or herself, is it me? Is it me? <laughs> it could it could be me. And and uh, I didn't keep this in the Christian versus Jewish question, but but this is what what where I was led to of the question of ordinary messianity. To to what extent can we think of each of ourselves as participating in the redemption of the world, not as the single person who will do it ourselves in a sort of having a messiah complex or something like this, but um, but um, yeah, as our as our participation participation in this. Uh, what's called redemption. Now you weren't raised in like a religious tradition explicitly, right? Or like a Christian religious tradition or even a Jewish religious tradition explicitly, right? I, I was raised Lutheran, okay. um, but, but it was pretty light. I like to say that for me, church was mowing the lawn, preparing the service, baking the bread. My mom baked the bread. I was in the choir, you know? So for me, it was a much more community community type thing, meaning it wasn't so strong on dogma. It wasn't uh, heavy handed by any means. So it was only after I was in <clears throat> college that I, that I started studying theology. Interesting. I, I don't know if you'd find this fascinating, but so I was raised, you know, I mean, I went to uh, Christian school, like when I was like four or five years old and then I didn't, but then I was going to church on the weekends after my dad converted to Christianity. And then I had my own kind of like proper evangelical come to Jesus moment myself when I was in uh, yeah. my early 20s, yeah. and uh, which is why I went to evangelical university to study theology. But I remember that instead of asking the kind of Jewish question that you mentioned a minute ago about, is it me with regards to the Messiah? It was the perversion yeah. of that, which is, am I the Antichrist? Like, could I be the Antichrist oh, wow. from let's say the kind of conservative oh, wow. pre-millennial interpretation yeah. of the Bible is that the Antichrist yeah. would be a singular person. And I remember actually having fears at uh, night that what if like I didn't want to be that person, but like God had ordained that I was going to be the Antichrist. <laughs> wow. And someone had put that fear into you, I guess. Yeah, well, I, and I've probably just had a uh, an anti-Messiah complex, I guess we could call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay, so... So, so messianism broadly is that it generally it generally is understood as this sort of like a, a restoration of the world into some sort of harmony, right? Like it's bringing the world yes. back to rights, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and and yeah. and often in connection with peace amongst the nations, peace peace created amongst the nations. You know, right? Peace among people and peace among the nations. So, I was on the bus once with a with a. Hasidic Jewish rabbi, and, and this was his total belief. He believed in this Menahem Schneerson, who was the Messiah in, in Brooklyn. I don't know, maybe your viewers have heard of him. A great book by a, a man named Elliot Wolfson called Open Secret, all about uh, Menahem Schneerson and the Hasidic movement surrounding him. Very interesting book. Hmm. Um, but but the Schneerson has died, and this rabbi was, he had been in New York to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of his death, and he, and he really believed that Menahem Schneerson would... Uh, 
rise from the dead, so to speak, wow. and and be the bringer of peace among all nations on earth. And it was quite funny because I, I had to ask him, well, you know, that story sounds a bit similar to one that I know too. <laughs> he, re he refused to see the parallels, but <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. You know, so this is the fantasy, right? This is the messianic fantasy, right? Right. That it, that it's gonna that it's gonna be one incredibly spiritual, divinely ordained, direct contact to God, perhaps even sharing one being with God. You know, consubstantiality, all this type of stuff. Who is in a in, absolutely unique position with regard to all other human beings and because of that unique position he will be able to achieve the goal for all of us um, mm. okay and i think this is the i think this is the wrong way to think about it <laughs> okay so what do you think would be a sort of uh, religionless interpretation of messianity that you find to be more constructive well i think what i would say first is that these thinkers who have thought uh, messianity non-religiously have done so uh, with the idea in mind that human experience and who we are uh, needs to be re reinterpreted. Um, mm. and, and it's at this point that instead of asking, okay, we all know what it is to be human and maybe someday there will arrive a very exceptional human being who is divine in some sense, we, we turn that question around and we sort of suspend what we think we know it is to be human. And we ask, wait, maybe what if, what if we have a different, what if there's a different way to interpret all of our experience uh, along different lines? So um, you could say it's a sort of uh, modified anthropology to ask, you know, in a way, are we, are we human or are we Messiah? I mean, this is the, provocative provocative way to put it um, mm. and and so uh, I, I say that just as a preface because I think that um, all the thinkers I mentioned earlier and especially Derrida this is the road that they go they go toward a, a reconceptualization of what is the human subject and what is what is experience and how is maybe mess how is maybe experience in and of itself messianic Mm. This is interesting. Um, so my research has really focused on the later uh, Sartre, who is not the existentialist, who kind of rejects Cartesian methodological individualism and uh, the the phenomenological existential tradition that characterized his earlier work. And in it, he kind of takes up a, a similar mantle where he wants to articulate the hope for new humanisms or that we might someday come to understand what the human might be. And similarly, Franz Fanon talks about how, you know, uh, the, the sort of like yes. rebellion of the colonized is all in the effort to finally create what the human might eventually be. And there's something interesting in yes. this. And I think it'd be interesting to kind of then ask the question, so then what is this notion of the human that, Derrida, the later Sartre, um, that Fanon, that maybe even someone like Foucault, but without the, obviously Foucault without the messianism, but what is this notion of the subject or this notion of the human that they're rejecting? Well, it, it certainly begins with, uh, with what you just mentioned of, of, of this kind of post-Cartesian, post-individual question. Um, 
just to maybe dig in a bit with, with Derrida, um, get maybe a few definitions out there. For Derrida, experience itself is structured uh, messianically. And what does he mean by that? It has to do above all, and we're going to end up repeating this a lot, I guess, but mm. it has above all to do with the relationship to the other and to what you cannot see coming. So he defines uh, messianicity without messianism as a universal structure of experience, which is by definition um, open to an other that it cannot see coming. It cannot see it coming. So there's, there's, no, there's no knowledge. There can be no knowledge or foresight of what one sees coming. And this is how maybe, maybe you know this distinction he draws between the future and the to come. The avenir. This is uh, l'avenir, yeah. yeah. And, and all, the, only, the only thing that he means by that is that the future is, is generally what we think can be planned, what can be uh, foreseen, what can be calculated, what can be projected ahead, so to speak. Whereas the, the avenir is the, is the chance that something come which you, which you did not see coming. Mm. And you, you can hear already echoes in that of, of, this, of this messianic hope, right? Mm. That, that in, a, in a totally sort of fallen and broken world, that something or someone or something would happen which would come that we did not see coming. Mm. And this would, sort of, this would sort of cut across the grain of history. Benjamin also describes messianicity in, in the sense of, of something that cuts across history and start something else or makes a space for, for something radically different to happen. And so, um, you know, this is one main theme in Derrida from, from beginning to end, drawing quite a bit from Levinas, um, this sort of priority of the other. Yeah, I was going to ask about this, this idea of the, the priority of the other implies the, the um, sort of uh, prior establishment or givenness of the other, does it not? Um, this is a really, uh, you have to be very careful because technically speaking, if you could already position the other somewhere, then the other is already a sort of uh, moment of the same. Do you see what I do? You see what I mean there. If if you know who it is or where it is or that it's already there, it's already in a way um, absorbed into your own into your expectations, and so, therefore it's so it not becomes very difficult. Right? It's already a, a part, like in Lacanian terms, it's already a part of the symbolic order. It isn't exactly yeah. exactly like okay. This. So yes. the yes. reason the reason I ask is because I did a little bit of work on uh, Jean Luc Marion when I was doing my master's degree. And for people listening, Jean-Luc Marion mm -hmm. is a, a French phenomenologist who is sometimes a part of this shift in the tradition of phenomenology that's called like the theological turn. So you get Jean-Luc Marion, uh, Jean-Yves Lacoste, Jean-Luc Chrétien, Michel Henry, and then Levinas is sometimes kind of couched within that. A and the reason that that I that I'm thinking about Marion is because Marion is really interested in the idea of the given that that there is a gift that is like a precedent. That, that, that is like anterior yes. to our yes. experience and our encounter with it. And that, of course, is given by God. It's the gift of God. Um, or it's the gift yes. of God, maybe even. Um, mm -hmm. And then Levinas kind of comes out of this, and, and I always kind of interpreted Levinas as kind of taking up that phenomenological tradition, that the given was, was 
was pre-established and that maybe that with Derrida, his whole project is deconstructing that. And that's what his project of deconstruction is, is it's the deconstruction of the metaphysics of presence itself. Is that accurate? Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, look at the paradox this way. In order for me to speak to you, I, I presuppose your presence somehow. <laughs> right. But at the very, but at the, but at the very same time, I'm asking you to come. I'm asking you to show up. You know, I'm asking for you to arrive. Mm. This is this is the this is the paradox of the other, uh, as as the aporia, so to speak, um, of the other is that in order to think the priority of the other, we don't need to call it presence. That's not too precise. But in order to think what you could call the precession, you know, uh, the the precession of the other over the same or over over my individual self, always because I am myself and am responsible for my decisions and my thoughts, always forces my my thinking into ask what it looks like for this. Uh, what is the manner of this of this coming of this of this difference coming in? Um, so um, mm. yeah, it gets it gets a bit difficult to. Uh, to sort of think, and it's supposed to, it's supposed to be difficult to, to think. It, because it's essentially trying to disrupt um, sort of common notions or common assumptions, correct? Yes, uh, I, I mentioned earlier the one-man one hypothesis, uh, which, I, which I think you could recognize in, in a great deal of, mess, not, not only messianic thinking, I mean, different groups of people look for leaders or wait for leaders or um, I, I want to try to make this as as graspable as possible um, but we we also think of ourselves as as one person as as one being as one human being right mm. and the whole question of of reinterpreting experience along messianic lines is to undo undo these notions of of, of i am just myself um, mm. I am living just. I am living just for myself. Um, my life is my life. Like a equals a. My life is my life, and and this is what this is what I think is the the deepest one of the deepest undercurrents in Derrida is this re reimagining of experience as on the one hand yes mine I must take responsibility for my decisions and my acts and my words and my thoughts at the same time all of those decisions are gifts from the other they are the event of the other in me <laughs> he, he, he he actually quite often quotes uh, quite often surprisingly often saint augustine this interior intimo mio that god is is um more in me than i am in myself wow hmm. um and so and so you can look at Derrida as a sort of almost universalization or generalization of such a phenomenon so that you don't just say with Augustine, God is in me more than myself, but you broaden that out and you, and you say the other or uh, the event I don't see coming or um, even death um, or the stranger or uh, yeah, the guest. All of these are, are simply figures of the other who is in me more than myself and gives me to myself. Gives, gives me to myself, yes. 
Okay. Hmm. And is this other always, um, and forgive me for being imprecise here because I, I'm running into the limits of language, but is this other always, yeah, <laughs> is this other always articulated as, as some sort of creature or as some sort of agent or, because no. No. I'm thinking right now of Bergson's notion of duration as being like this disruption, or I'm sorry, this disruption that is time. There you go. There's a nice word. Disruption. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, I mean, I guess if we're talking about Derrida, we might as well make up our own neologisms, right? We might as well find our own. That's words. right. Yeah. Um, but but I, I can't comment yeah. to duration, but I can I can comment to um, suspension. Okay. Um, for for Derrida, there's no destruction. Uh, destruction. De there's no deconstruction without this moment of suspension, which is for Derrida basically the moment of thought, where the other uh, sort of. It's hard to be. It's hard to to say it in a way that's not very that's not misleading, of course. But the suspension is where something cuts across. I'm touched by the other. Let's say it this way. And that doesn't mean it's a creature. It can be a text that I find. It can be something that happens across the street. It can be, um, it, it can really be anything, but, but the main issue is that it is that it is, is an event. And um, maybe not the whole French tradition, but a, a great deal of the French tradition understands the event as something which is an exception to being, right? Mm. An exception to what is. It's something that breaks through. So it's nothing I can point to. It's not on the it's not on the level of what is, but on the level of what happens. And the other is is what happens. The other is what comes to suspend my ideas about myself, my ideas about the world. And um, this is the chance, um, which has two sides. It can be good and bad. I mean, there's no guarantee that when the other comes, they have good news, or that or that it's. I mean, for Derrida, I was very adamant about this that this structure of experience as being a priori open to the other that it doesn't see coming opens you to great risk and to a need for change. I mean, think about even like uh, the immigrant, the immigrant and refugee crisis right now, like this openness to openness to the other in this case requires um, a change in, in who we think we are. You know, nations have to change who they think they are. Mm because of crises like this, you know, they're uh, full on identity crises because the other has come, has announced itself and the other will never stop coming. This is his point. You can try to say, no, the other's not coming, but they're coming, you know, <laughs> and it will come to you. It will come to you too. And this is, and this is your chance, right? Mm. It's interesting. I think so many people think of Derrida as this, you know, like abstruse, uh, thinker about texts and words and language, but he's eminently <laughs> yeah. concerned with ethics because it seems that everything that you are describing has 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 absolute uh, import for lived experience, and that it's not just musing about yes. words. No, no, this is yeah. I mean, and. I'm focusing on some later, some later ideas by him. Of course, I mean this uh, messianity idea wasn't 
it wasn't so fully formed till about 1990, and then from then on, it was quite quite a central uh, sort of pedagogical <laughs> tool for him to describe the various uh, aporias that he was working through. You know, the possibility of the impossible, um, unconditional. Uh, you know, for example, unconditional hospitality is impossible. Right. I mean, unconditional hospitality means you would just sort of let somebody in and, and you give yourself entirely over, uh, entirely over to the other. I mean, it, it, by definition, is, is impossible. So there's always a always a negotiation. But the call is for it to be unconditional. So so the aporia is that if the other can't be calculated beforehand, can't be known beforehand. What sort of calculations do I, as a living subject, then make to make room for to make room for such a for such a coming? It has to do um, with like a, a dispositional realignment to the world. Then I think so. Yeah, and this is the this is the opening to the suspension that I was speaking about as well. Um, and these and these uh, require inventions, and you don't have a rule. We don't have a rule book here. That's why. Um, your audience will have to forgive this for being so abstract, but it's because there's no um, sort of ethical guideline or, or rule book. I mean, you could relate all of this to love your neighbor as yourself, right? I mean, you can see quite clearly certain certain parallels, certain parallels here, but, but the issue is that in each event, each event requires its own its own unique response. And and so then in a way, the key word here is vigilance, right? Is vigilance. Um, keeping vigil over the other who is in me more than myself or the other who, who comes to my doorstep or who surprises me with their presence in my life. Um, and honoring that. And um, if I just say uh, one more thing on that, um, with regard to texts, with regard to the Derrida of books, what you have in his readings is the same concern, which is to let the other be other, to let the other be other, and to not bring an interpretation over the top of what someone else has said. Um, so this is, for example, so what he is, means when he says, like, there is no other text. Sometimes it's translated inappropriately as, like, there is no meaning outside the text, but that's not what he's saying, right? It's just that there is no other text that can come over and like over-determine that encounter with that other? Is that kind of right? Sure, yeah. I mean, the better way to say uh, there's this, uh, the thing you're thinking of is there is no outside of the text. Um, but it, it, this is a misleading, can be very misleading. It's, it's the better way to think of it is that we're always in a context in which we think, but no context is, is fully saturated. There is always a, an other text which which comes and cuts across any context. If we listen, this is the issue. If we listen to the other, there's always another text coming, cutting across the context, right? Mm -hmm. Don't say text. We can say texture even is better because then we have a more uh, materialist kind of image to, to work with. But the other has a texture. The other has a text. And they come and we have the choice uh, to listen to that, to listen to that or not. Mm. Um, and, but I mean, you know, and even if we try to exclude it, the text, the te that texture is still there in the, in the global texture, right? 
Mm. Okay. All right. So how do we whip this then back around to uh, messianism? Messianism, yeah. Because we were talking about the the notion of the human that um, that that Derrida and uh, other thinkers of that ilk are, are distancing themselves yeah. from, and that notion of yeah. the human would be some sort of essential Cartesian individual, like I am the individual of my story or whatever it is, and it's this yeah, self sameness. Yeah. Okay, and it's this uh, overturning of that like law of identity. Of uh, of a yeah. commitment to a, a stringent commitment to I as an individual, and an opening up to the um, not not the embrace, but uh, an opening up to like endless perpetual encounters with otherness as such. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and then does this fit into then his notion of uh, the Messiah or of justice to come? I'm kind of just throwing out terms that I know from from having read yeah, some stuff. Sure. So, like, um, how does this kind of all fit in? Well, again, I mean, what what I'm what I what he has struggled to describe and what I have been sort of trug- struggling to say is a is a formal structure, right? It's a formal structure. Derrida was was a man very concerned with formalization. He wasn't a mathematician. He wasn't an analytical philosopher. But he believed that uh, even in texts that are so-called literary, could could formalize certain things uh, very well, um, and and in fact better than than mathematical texts could. This is a crazy hypothesis in a way, <laughs> to say that uh, to say that philosophical or literary language, in its ambiguity, could be more uh, accurately formalizing a problem than uh, a rigorous logical language. Um, but so okay, so we're describing a formal, a, a formal quality here, and so the reason that he calls it messianicity without messianism um, is because, as as a form, there can always be certain contents that go into it, certain promises that go into it. But as a form, you have to try to think it in in the most uh, abstract way possible right um and so there's no um there's no sort of like uh prohibition on thinking through what is the content of the promise what do we hope for what what should we expect Mm. the 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 point the point is simply that um the risk is always that those contents of expectation will override somehow the formal openness itself right Mm. And so then all, of, then all of a sudden, in the name of your messianism, which has a certain vision for the future, you know, or a certain program that needs to be followed, all of a sudden, in the name of that vision, you are excluding all of this otherness. You're excluding the difference of, of, of other experiences. Mm. Um, and so this is why he tries to think it in such a sort of formal and abstract way. Um, so could we say then um, from... So, so for somebody who is so uh, tightly connected to the idea that the, for example, that uh, that the Messiah is Jesus and He will come at the end of history and save us, and therefore mm-hmm. there are doctrinal formulations that must be held to mm-hmm. based on uh, His deity yeah. and His literal resurrection, uh, literally in His body, and all of these other kind of doctrines that flow from that. That that would be precisely um, the 
the type of determinateness that he would be eschewing in favor of his messianic uh, messianicity without messianism. Yes, and and my guess is, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I also have had periods in my life where I was incredibly uh, in the Christian thought wave. Let's put it <laughs> right. Um, I was. Pray, praying all the time. I was in the monastery. I was considering becoming, uh, you know, a monk or a priest, or you know, all, all of these things are experiences I had. And what what led it in my case, and I assume in many many other cases, is what happened. They heard other voices. They listened to other voices. Maybe they read Nietzsche, or or they read Marx, or they they read something like this. And all of a sudden, you have you have something cuts across, you know, you realize that, that there are these, these other voices and most uh, sort of fallen away, well, not most, but many fallen away Christians that I know who no longer would identify as Christian, would no longer uh, believe in all the doctrinal things you just mentioned, they have not given up on the central ethical message. They, in many cases, they feel like they are pursuing it further and in a way that their old community can't so much understand mm. because that their old community doesn't want to hear the other's voice, you see. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think Troy and myself would kind of be kind of in that, uh, in that group as well. Yeah. 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 Um, it's uh, a matter of vision and, and, and who, who gets to, to decide what the vision is in a certain way? I mean, these are these are difficult difficult questions, and I, I think what what frustrates people maybe probably about Derrida and probably about things I'm saying is there's no uh, there's no straightforward path forward from that, and I think that that makes people uncomfortable, and I think that what what a positive messianism, you know, with a real strong content, a strong vision, what you have to believe, what you should expect. Uh, what what signs in the world you should look for? All of this all of this provides a lot of comfort. It provides a lot of peace, and it, it, even if it never eventuates, even if it never happens, that's fine because that vision and that content provided a kind of solace. Mm. Um, and so the perspective of Derrida on all this is he calls it an anxious anxious messian messianicity, like it's. It's anxious and melancholy. It wants the other to come. It never knows if the other will come. It doesn't know if this if this difference will ever happen, and yet it leaves itself open in this anxiety, um, going through these uh, sort of uh, paradoxes and impossibilities, and, uh, leaving oneself open, open somehow. I'm thinking of like Beckett's waiting for Godot right now, right? And, yeah. and, and so one of the things that I find interesting is that before this uh, deferral, let's say, of satisfaction or deferral of expectation, you're still being mediated. Your life is still subjected according to that expectation. So my question is, is yeah. does he have an ethical, like a meta-ethical framework to to guide people in their experience as it's being mediated by this endless deferral like why what what are better approaches in this anticipatory state than others 
and is even asking that mm. question, is that appropriate or am I already front loading it by assuming that there needs to be a determinateness? That's very, that's very hard. You, you might be, but, but it would be nice to be able to answer that question, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. Well, cause so mm. I've, I've heard that maybe ben, <laughs> Benjamin might come along and be somebody that would have a more sort of determinate answer here. Is that maybe, or maybe not? And, um, do you have something in mind or? Um, so I, I'm not as familiar. It, it's funny, man. Everybody that I talk with is always like, when they, especially when they read my research and they hear things that I'm thinking, they're like, you need to read Benjamin. You will love Benjamin. And whenever I read about Benjamin, I love Benjamin, but I just haven't taken the time yeah. yet to do it. Um, I will. It's, yeah. it's, it, but I know it's a big project, you know, as it is with like starting with any figure. Um, but so the way that I had, I, I had, I have read is that Derrida is much more, um, would be much more inclined towards the idea of the hidden or the deferral, whereas Benjamin's yeah. uh, like messianism without messianism, or however he refers to it, um, or his would it would be kind of similar yeah. that it's it's a little bit more about a, a presencing that it's already that it's already there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There's there's no doubt about this. Um, um, ben Benjamin is. The phrase that's that he uses is called weak messianic power. Okay, that's it. Yeah, and um, and and so for Benjamin, it's 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 much more explicitly framed in the struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor, right? Um, and his some of his statements are, you know, each generation is endowed with a weak messianic power, and I and I love I think the best image for this is is an undercurrent. So there is in human society and in human culture, there is an undercurrent of let's call them messianic intensities, messianic energies, messianic thoughts, um, basically seeds, messianic seeds, which are just sort of waiting there to be reread in our current time. And Benjamin's text himself is one of them. Um, you know, this sort of potential, which is, which is, as of now, latent in history, which is just sort of waiting to be awakened in the in, in the present, mm. and you, you can you can look at this through the through the issue of the promise, right? Um, what I'm what Derrida says and what I'm saying is is a promise. You know, I I'm trying to uh, realize it right now for myself, and in that very moment of of articulating it, I'm I'm making a promise. I'm making a promise for the future that I may never see. Hmm. Um, and this is the same um, with Benjamin, although he is more, uh, he's more oriented around an explicitly uh, historical type inquiry. You know, his, his arcades project, for example, is this massive um, research into um, written artifacts from largely from Paris in the 19th century, um, all that whole effort is trying to locate these points of awakening. You know, he has this mm -hmm. idea that the past is kind of like a dream, but it's dreaming of, uh, a better, of a better future, to put it simply. But those images are still latent, and, and, and our job then is to you know, not reinterpret history just for the sake of history, but in order to orient history toward um, 
toward a redemptive a redemptive time quite exactly hmm. now so are you familiar with the controversy towards the end of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's life with uh, his interviews with Benny Levy? No. So Benny I, I no I'm not. Yeah, so Benny Levy was a was a young Maoist activist in the May 68 um uprising in France in Paris, but he was also um an orthodox uh Jew. And so some of the criticisms uh basically are surrounded about how they, how, uh, so Sartre and Lévy worked together at the end of Sartre's life. Uh, Lévy was like editing a lot of Sartre's work and they were kind of um, collaborating on a couple of projects. And there's this series of uh, interviews with uh, Sartre, between Sartre and Benny Lévy, and, and they're compiled in this, uh, this edited volume, if people are interested, called Hope Now. And it's called like, I don't know, the okay. conversations from the 1980s or something like that, or like last conversations from the from 1980 or something. And in it, Sartre seems to abandon a lot of his earlier pessimism about intersubjective um, relations, about the idea of being for others, and he seems to espouse a sort of messianism. And a lot of people accuse Benny Levy of sort of taking advantage of an older mm. man. And, and there's a lot of literature, I mean, it, a lot of debate in the, the Sartrean literature about to what extent, because actually like Simone de Beauvoir and a lot of Sartre's friends they were very critical of uh, Benny Levy's relationship because they actually said that they, they kind of like that he he manipulated Sartre into accepting this idea of Jewish messianism. And the reason they were critical mm. of that is because Sartre had always been held up as this avowed atheist, and that somehow mm. uh, they they believed that Levy was basically imposing his own messianism onto Sartre for the purposes of sign capital so that then he could release it into the public and make it have a little bit more clout right and uh, so there are a lot of there's a lot of controversy there but I haven't the heard of that yeah it's really it's really interesting um, especially when you read just kind of a little bit about the the literature engaging subsequently with those texts and and with the controversy yeah. at the time but the thing that I think is interesting I think a lot of people listening might might be like, fuck, man, I'm an atheist, right? Or like, yeah. I am one of those people who was raised in a, in a Christian environment, a Jewish environment, um, a Muslim environment. Um, I was raised maybe in a Hindu environment, and I've completely eschewed any sort of spirituality whatsoever. This all just sounds like supernatural mumbo jumbo. I mean, do you yeah. think that there's a way to sort of navigate between that so that somebody, because I actually come down the side on the Sartre interviews with Levy at from a sort of more synthetical or, or I try to synthesize Sartre's concerns with uh, Lévy's interest yeah. in messianism because I don't necessarily see them as being at odds. I don't think it somehow betrays his commitments to existentialism and to the importance of uh, mater historical materialism. So what would you say to, right. to that kind of response that it's like, ah, this is grating my atheist ears or something like that? Well, I mean, this is why I... I I think that they are very incredibly atheist uh, ideas at this point. Messianic. I mean, it's, I guess it's a bit ironic that something something so devoted to moment by moment struggle um, for the exceptional, for the outside voices of history, for this welcoming of what one doesn't see coming. How how all of this, which I I find to be very um, very materially and sort of this world kind of oriented how all of this could come out of a religious background is is is, is a bit of a paradox but i <laughs> right 
I think it, it I think it falls entirely on the side of of as I started uh, who are we what what promises have we made to each other and to ourselves and how do we do right by those promises what do we see in history which has in it sort of hidden or latent these potentials which we are called upon to to realize to make actual somehow um, you know I, I I looked up I looked up the Benjamin because he does have a a much more concrete um, sort of suggestion about this. Um, he says basically that in the class struggle, um, which is a struggle for material things, um, without which there is nothing fine and spiritual. And those, but those fine and spiritual things, which fall to those who struggle, are present as confidence courage, humor, cunning, and steadfastness. And these qualities reach back far into the mists of time. Hmm. And, and the idea here is that in every generation where there is this struggle that, that, that um, history is turning, this is quite faithful in a certain, quite a, quite a belief in a certain way, but that but the history is turning, is turning towards a more redemptive, towards a more redemptive time. And so our job, in Benjamin's sense, as, as historians, because we're all historians, we're all inheriting something from the past, past ideas, um, past hopes. Um, the goal is to read these very material traces, very concrete thoughts of very concrete human beings in, in very concrete historical situations and re-enliven them, give them a new language. Uh, bring them to others, open them to to new languages, and and so on and so forth. Um, this this reminds me of something I wanted to say. Apologies if I'm a bit scattered, but you know what did Paul say? Paul said, um, "I would like to be all things for all people, mm. so that I might save a, so that I might save a few." Mm. And I look at at messianity in in this light. It's a very creative, inventive use of self, use of language, which in this sense tries to be all for all people, tries to be all for all others, so that maybe some people who are listening along will, you know, take up take up the banner, so to speak, in whatever way that means for them. Um, or let's use the, the, the words of Jesus, the taking up your cross daily and following. And the point of taking your cross is not just, hey, embrace these doctrinal beliefs and intellectually assent to these dogmas it's uh it's actually kill yourself it's mortify yourself it's mortify your attachment yeah. to your individual yeah. things that yeah. that root you in this world yeah. and commit yourself exactly. to that other project exactly yeah. and this is this what you just said is exactly the sort of messianic uh prescription if, if that's what we're what we're looking for you know paul says also i die daily what does this mean? I died daily. Right. This is so close to things Derrida says about how um, the other suspends us, or how how we're, we're always carrying death with us. In the sense that what we say and do is always a promise. And and what's beautiful about the trace, what Derrida thinks as the trace is that it survives the living present. It survives this present in which you and I are, are currently speaking. And 
It survives into new contexts. It cuts across new contexts with our other voices, right? As does Paul's voice. Is the trace a sort of like res- like an echo? Is it like a resonance? Some sort of. It certainly, it certainly can be. Like, is this where the the haunting and like hauntology comes from? Absolutely, okay. absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we can say right away that everything we're talking about in terms of messianicity is haunted by Paul. It's haunted by Christ, just as it's um, uh, haunted by uh, the entire Abrahamic tradition. And and there's nothing wrong with that haunting. What what matters is that we uh, we creatively appropriate the ghosts, so to speak, hmm. you know, that we we listen to them correctly, you know, and so when obviously what Paul meant when he said I die daily had to do with, you know, his view of the resurrected Christ is is living with him. And if if one died, therefore all died, and one is risen, therefore all are risen. You know, Paul had his own uh sort of framework through which to think this, but we need to detach from the literal uh, the literal way of it being said and take it into consideration with all of these other uh, trajectories and understand for ourselves what it means to die daily, to, uh, to deconstruct the one, the one person hypothesis, so to speak, and to, uh, to figure out what it means also to then address all of these ideas to others in a way that they can hear, hopefully in their language, if, if we can, mm. although this is difficult. Hmm. I mean, God, this is, we're, we'll have to do this uh, again with Troy, because I know that Troy would love to talk further about this um, with you. Um, yeah. Before we wrap things up, like this has been a lovely primer on this, but I feel like we are literally just scratching the surface and, and this would just totally, be amazing yeah. to continue this conversation I have two more things that I wanted to ask you about. One is about Laruel, and then one is, let's end it with something about poetry. Um, But so first, let's, (laughs) and and so uh, Francois Laruel's project is notoriously enigmatic. So in as as simple a way as possible, how does he fit into this discussion? Okay, so, um, you know, Christ's statement, um, in the world, you will have trouble and tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Mm. You know this statement? I have overcome the world. Mm -hmm. We have not mentioned it thus far. As you say, we could keep going a long time on this. But obviously one of the issues with messianicity is overcoming the world somehow. Um, um, And um, this is Laurel's main main orientation. how do I put it simply? Laurel wants to say that he, he uses the phrase radical imminence, right? Um, and also things like the Messiah in person. Mm. Yeah. How do I explain this? Um, basically, what you have is you have a kind of, well, let me come at it this way. For, for Laurel, the world is a world of subjects and beings, right? I, when I call myself a subject, I am, as Heidegger put it, being in the world. And, and for Laurel, this is basically the structure of philosophy. So when he talks about philosophy, this is basically synonymous with sort of being in the world, of thought taking on the form of the world, with, 
whether you think of the world as a big container or as a space of different beings or however you want to think of the world, uh, me as a human subject, being in the world, this is what Laurel thinks of as philosophy. And what non-philosophy is about, it's about thinking in what way are we kind of not already not in it? Hmm. In what way have we never, and we never entered philosophy. Non-philosophy doesn't mean a negation of philosophy. It's, it's a use of philosophy from a certain standpoint, which has never, never entered into philosophy and never does enter into philosophy. In the same way that what he calls the Messiah in person, for example, it's, it's put it this way, it's, it's that part of us which is never really in the world, which is always sort of, uh, you don't want to say removed or withdrawn, but which, which um, approaches it from a, from a kind of uh, separateness in some way. Um, is it because that unfortunately I'm, I'm not being too precise with his with his he would not put it in these ways but the whole point is yeah. to defend defend the ordinary human from being wrapped up in the world from the harassment of the world and and this is also one way of thinking messia messianicity instead of thinking ourselves as a subject in the world there's something underneath that before language before thought even and maybe even before experience, if we can even possibly think this, that there's something underneath or something prior, and this is what he calls uh, the Messiah in person. I maybe see. that's not so. No, no, it's that's not so clear. Well, he, yeah, he's 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 tough. I mean, even like I've read quotes from Alain Badiou, who is one of the foremost French philosophers in the world, and he says, "I don't understand Laruelle." <laughs> You know, yeah, um, and it's because he's well, doing something that's quite I, counterintuitive. Yeah. I think to people who are, who are very familiar with philosophical language and philosophical approaches. Yeah. yeah. Well, the 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 thing with Laurel that you always want to kind of keep in mind is his whole project begins with the question of the one, right? The one, and the imminent one, the undivided one. So he's pairing imminence with the undividedness of a sort of unity, a unity that's not created after things are already divided up, but a oneness that is sort of ahead of every division. Let's put it this way, a oneness ahead of every division. In other words, a oneness ahead of everything that is. And so when he talks about the one, he's not talking about the one that is, he's talking about a one that can't even be converted into being. And this is why it's so confusing for philosophers, right? Because they're like, what are you talking about? Like everything is a question of being and what is. How can you talk about how can you talk about a one without talking about it being? But this is what he tries to do, and he tries to make a rigorous theory out of this. And so when he talked he talks about the one in person. This means the one in person is sort of ahead of all being, ahead of every world, ahead of every philosophy, or underneath every philosophy. And it's this instance of humanity, of ordinary humanity, which he then undertakes to defend from division, defend from the world form, and therefore defend from what he calls philosophy. And does it result in some sort of ethical or political project? 
as well? No, absolutely none. No, this is a huge gap. Okay. Huge gap. Huge gap. Yeah. Because he does have a book no, called like to... Non-Marxism, right? Or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't spend uh, much time with that. It's a little bit older book. but uh, okay. No, his main interest is to defend humans from the harassment of the world. The book I would recommend to everyone from Laurel, uh, uh, Christ of Fiction, of course, but also General Theory of the Victim. This is an incredible book. Um, some difficult parts, but um, Laurel is on the side of the victim in this sense, because the victim is the one who is harassed, who is harassed by the world. And he, he wants to think through a sort of quiet or non-active overcoming of harassment, of persecution, which doesn't uh, replicate the circle of persecutor and persecuted. Right? So instead of the persecuted victim, then later becoming the persecutor who gets retributive justice on the person who persecuted them and this, this cycle just spins and spins and spins. Right. This is the world. That, that's the form of the world. And so his, his attempt is to try to think the victim without, the victim as not needing to enter into that circle of so, retributive justice. So it's, it's non-dialectical. It's, <laughs> the word that he uses is called unilateral duality. So there's a duality between um, man and person, radical immanence, the one, and uh, being and the world. And um, it's a unilateral duality in the sense that the things of the, the beings of the world are always in the last instance determined by the one, hmm. but in this sort of weak, sort of weak way, not like an over-the-top determination, but an underdetermined. <laughs> I think he's he's laughing cuz he's laughing cuz my hand my hand is on my head cuz I'm try I'm I'm trying so hard. <laughs> I'm trying so hard. I'm also laughing because I'm, I'm also laughing because the best the if I was being truly accurate I would fall into Laurel speak and nobody nobody wants That's to the other that. thing is that he does he does utilize a very particular language set and but think of think of it Think of it that the last instance, he, he said, he speaks a lot about the last instance. This is like the end of the world. He's really, in a way, thinking through the imminence of the end of the world. What does it mean uh, if everything was sort of thought through from the point of the world already being over or, or never having started? I mean, this is the speculative history. And, and what is that? So, and, I'm, and not to like reduce it to just a very simple question, but then I just want to be like, okay, so what the fuck does that mean for us? Right, like, like with Derrida and Benjamin, there's a very clear ethical project. But with Derrida, this yeah. idea of like thinking alongside the victim or the heretic or these other figures, these like minoritarian figures that he thinks alongside, what what does that yeah. mean for us? Like, is this just gnosis for the sake of gnosis, or like what what does this mean? That is a that is a totally valid critique, and within his later work, I don't think he has an answer for it. Um, that was another sort of misgiving I had about my own thesis is that I, I didn't address any, basically no political problem. It, it comes down, although I will defend it a little bit by saying um, for Laurel, all of this move to the Messiah in person versus the human sub versus the subject, you know, yeah. it's, it's the same move of, of critiquing the self same subject caught in the loop of transcendence in the world, so to speak. 
And so Lowell also, in this kind of parallel to Badiou, wants to think of generic subjectivity, uh, generic subjectivity. And so, yeah, I mean, this is where critique of the one-man hypothesis leads you to a question of generic subjectivity or a subjectivity without subject, which is, um, you know, you could liken this to a kind of singularity who embodies the universal, but is never totally lost in the universal. They retain some kind of singularity or solitude, and yet that whole solitude and singularity is is thrown into use. It's thrown into um, into being a sort of what do I want to say? A kind of like a call station. Mm. I'm a call station. You know, I become a call station um, without any sort of self propriety. At the end of the day, I have no propriety over myself, but I am a call station for messianic promise. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> maybe Fuck. it sounds. Yeah. Maybe we're doing poetry. We're already answering the poetry question. Yeah. Well, and then let's let's transition to it. Like, so you have recently uh, been really uh, paying attention to writing poetry. This is something that you've that you've yeah. shifted to. And I remember when we were. I mean, this is over a year ago now. When we were in Italy, you had talked a lot about planning on doing this, and you had been more interested in yeah. writing yeah. Uh, non-philosophical pieces and. I can only imagine that your interest in poetry has something to do with your study of Derrida and messianism as like Derrida himself has, yeah. uh, I sent a quote to you earlier from an interview that he gave where he says something yeah. along the lines of that, um, that in poetry, there's essentially something prophetic about it. And that in, in language, there's essentially something both poetic and therefore prophetic. And so I would, I can only imagine that that's yeah. kind of been, um, a big motivating factor in, in yeah. leading you down this road. So what, what are your interests in poetry? What is the kind of potency of poetry towards well, some of these concerns? The biggest parallel for me is, is um, there's a German poet named Paul Salon who gave a speech in 1960, the Meridian speech, which sort of lays out his, his vision for poetry, which is the one that I subscribe to. Um, and his whole vision is that every poem is in route to the other. So it's kind of, it's a dual movement where I speak from my, I speak from where I am, of course, but in the process of writing, in the process of, of letting the poem create, be created, I estrange myself from myself in some way. I, I, I assume a kind of distance from my I, from my subject position. And through that distance that is created, I, I allow myself a chance to encounter the other. And then the poem you could look at as a kind of readout or transcript of an encounter. And so for, mm. for Paul Salon, poetry is the mystery of an encounter, the mystery of an encounter between an eye that is sort of taken away, taken out of itself into the future, and an other that, that meets it and goes along with it to another, to a future future, so to speak. Mm. Um, and so Paul Salon says that all, that poems are all written in light of utopia. Um, utopia in the formal sense of the place without place, not, not like some, you know, some rosy uh, content <laughs> anticipation uh, expected perfect city or something, but um, 
poems are written as promises in this sense. They're promises to a future place, which we don't know where it is, and we don't know if it exists or not. But so, so yes, exactly. This is uh, very much in line with, with Derrida's idea of the promise, that on the one hand, I am making the promise now, <laughs> um, but also that uh, it's, it's, the promise can only really uh, take hold on the other side, on your side, so to speak. You know, the poem needs the other. It requires the other to come out and meet it. Otherwise, the poem can't go into the future. But when the person comes to meet the poem, comes to meet the promise, then we both go forward into the future together. Um, and yeah, well, that's just a vision of poetry. I didn't really say anything about poetry per se, but as a use of language, this is this is this is uh, this is the vision of poetry that I that I subscribe to. Hmm. For one of them, yeah. Um, just because we tend to talk a lot about like political philosophy on this podcast, do you see there being an an, an ethical and or political component to poetry's use value? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, it's it's a bit. Uh, it's not so clear, but I would put it this way. Um, language is often used according to our what we already know about identities, for example, about who is who, about what words mean what, um, about which, which categories things fall into. And I think in many ways, kind of the malaise of today's political landscape is that Everybody in their speech about this is relying upon categories and identities which themselves are undergoing profound mutations and crises. Mm. And I think what poetry can do is open the mind, open the heart to uh, rewiring all of that, you know, mm. to, uh, to sort of add, add, an, add a add a little bit of, add a lot of bit of flexibility into how we read and how we understand the other, because the poem is always a very bizarre document, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, very, very intimate speech, and on the one hand, on the other hand, very, very strange, it can be very hard to read, but I think uh, mm. poetry is the voice of a singularity who wants to be understood, wants to be translated, but in order to be understood and translated, requires a compromise, requires an effort on the part of the other to get into a different language uh, and hear a different kind of voice than the one that the journalists spread, you know, mm. <laughs> because, because what's said in poetry can't be expected. It's not expected. Whereas in many other cases, politically, we're oriented only to what we already expect. Mm. Mm, I love this, this, this idea of being oriented to our pre-established expectations is something that has really consumed a lot of my thought uh, with Sartre's work in the Critique of Dialectical Reason. He develops this theory mm -hmm. called seriality. And uh, mm -hmm. seriality, one way that he describes it is with regards to bourgeois respectability in 19th century France, which he classifies as being... Um, something where nobody actually communicates because everyone just fills a role and says the same thing as everybody else. Exactly. 
and exactly. yeah. and it's this idea of um, that not only being some ethereal concept, but that actually manifesting itself in the way that we think, and the way that we feel, and the way that we speak, and the way yes. that we act. That we're being compelled from without, within a very limited paradigm of yes. what he calls praxis, or we might just say thought and action. Yeah. And breaking out of that that cycle of mimesis is something that I, I that, that consumes my thoughts so much. And I have. I've recently found myself falling in love with poetry for so many of, I think, the reasons that you have articulated because there's something about how poetry slows slows me down. Poetry exactly. forces my attention and it's and it's yeah. it, and it like it's a shift in my piety away from the expectations of my social media notifications and the deadline that I have for my book and all these other things yeah. and and it kind of it's a shift in my dispositional orientation to the world. And and for some reason, I think music can do this as well. I think film can do this. Like certain film can do this, right? And um, like I just recently saw an amazing movie the other day called Walkabout by Nicholas Rogue, who just recently okay. passed away. And it's, oh, yeah. yeah, and it's this amazing um, experiment. It's not an experimental film. It's not like, it's not avant-garde in the extreme sense, but it's definitely um, an experimentation with the form of montage. And he uses juxtaposition of images, and I found it to be a very sort of poetic experience rather than a prose experience. Whereas like yeah. going to see the new Transformer film, not that it's bad, you'll get a nice dopamine rush and maybe there are moments right. of poetic utterances or whatever, yeah, but, sure. still, but still, yeah, like, sure. but still like- A lot of cliche too. So much, <laughs> right. And and kind of breaking out of that mimetic serial circling of cliche is something that just consumes yeah. so much of my, my efforts and thoughts and desires, yeah. you know? I mean, De deconstruction in many ways could be translated as a kind of deep deprogramming via these encounters or, or through these other languages that we that 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 bring us to a halt or make us pause and and ask ourselves wow there's there really is an other here mm. there's been an other here with a different different view and a different language and and yet i can translate that into mine and then that changes my language and how i think and, and uh, this is pro this is like you know, this is true progress in history. You know, mm. yeah. This is why I think it's much better to think of Derrida uh, as a post phenomenological thinker rather than a post structuralist, because he's still concerned yeah. with these ideas of givenness, the other, and with the epoche, like the suspending and the bracketing. But it's done in a very um, in a different way, but he's coming out of that, out of Husserl and Heidegger, Levinas mm -hmm. responding to them, and it's not. I I never have felt comfortable, not never, but in the last few years, I haven't felt comfortable thinking of him as a post-structuralist. It doesn't it doesn't seem right to think of him in that framework because it's not like he. I mean, he is responding to like Claude Levi Strauss and some of the structural concerns, but it seems I don't know it, that that just doesn't seem as precise. Yeah, I've I've never uh, I've never really been able to get myself into that debate either because uh, the more that you read Derrida, especially the later stuff, you you see this this dimension of incredible concern for for what's happening. <laughs> I mean, right for lived experience. For, yeah, yeah, and for what what how we conceive of of our subject, our subjectivity. You know, he has a. Uh, maybe not get into this but the whole uh, the whole question of, of 
how to assimilate the other into myself. This is, this is for him the question of the subject is, how do I listen to the other and um, yeah, assimilate or absorb or bring into myself, into my experience? How do I do that from the other in the most respectful way, in the way that lets them still be other, you know, so I'm not just sort of devouring them with my own preconceived idea of who this, of who this other is, right? Mm. Um, and so, and so, for him, subjectivity is very much this calculation of how do I, how do I interact with all every form of otherness, and how do I give myself to the other? How do I give myself as other to the other? Um, and all of these are ways of getting us outside of the box of ourself, you know, mm. because it's all very, it's all so outward turned when you when you put it in that manner that that. That's why I said earlier I'm a I'm a call station mm. or a promise, you know. That's why I, I play at saying that because because it means I'm hearing your call, responding to calls from others, and I'm giving myself out as a call. And and what what I have left for myself is is in the end of the day nothing in a way. And that's good. <laughs> that's 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 messianity, <laughs> basically. Mm. I love that. Fuck, that's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely have to chat more about this. Uh, we'll definitely get you uh, into a discussion with Troy, too, because I'm sure he would have I'd some other it. questions. I'd and, love it, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, thank you so much for, for coming oh, on. Oh, this has been a, great, been, a great, been a great pleasure. Cool, man. Cool. And for those of you listening, uh, thank you guys for checking it out. Of course, if you um, want to follow the podcast, you can do so on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore Dawn. We've got a Facebook group. You can email us with questions, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Um, Tim, you're not on social media that much other than like your own, like you don't do Twitter or anything like that, do you? I, I'm not on I'm not on Twitter, but I do have a website which uh, has many, many of my writings, um, which is uh, fragilekeys.com. Cool. Fragile Keys, FragileKeys.com. So, and there's that you can, if you can word search for Derrida, you'll find a lot, a lot of things. <laughs> cool. Do you have any stuff on Laurel to help us out? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's at least eight articles on Laurel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, cool. If you want to bang your head against yeah. that wall, have at it. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there, there's a lot of the uh, uh, kinder, more generous texts there as well. So don't, don't be afraid. <laughs> cool. Here I go. Moving in the sky as smoothly as a bird, you scarcely realize you are traveling faster than man has ever traveled before.